From KLCC Media, this is the Oregon Grapevine. I'm Barbara Dellenbach. The Oregon Grapevine highlights fresh-pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. Colin Copeman is the chair of the philosophy department at the University of Oregon and studies how data and data collection is affecting our lives and times. He's also the author of How We Became Our Data. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Our lives and data obviously now intertwined in ways that were unimaginable at some point, not till not that long ago. So how does that connection affect us? Well, I think of our um, immersion in data as something that feels prominent and poignant today, but at the same time is really the culmination of a longer than typically recognized process going back at least 100 years, a little bit more than 100 years, at least in the United States context. I think it's a lot more visible to us today in light of things like social media and we're all carrying around these giant information machines in our pockets, which are these little tiny phones we have. And we have access typically to the internet through those and access to all these data and access importantly to ways of sharing our own data through phones. Um, So it feels very much at our fingertips and it's very available and it's a lot quicker now than I think um, our um, technologies and abilities to share data were even just a generation or two ago. That said, it's certainly the case that a generation or two ago, and really, you know, three, four, go, again, going back uh, around 100 years, everybody was living their life through data, right? So y- there's this period in U.S. history in the progressive era, the, the teens and 20s, where there's this really remarkable shift where society went from a few people being in a position to have or make use of certain kinds of personal data to everybody being more or less required or obligated to. Um, A good example of this that we're all familiar with would be the social security number. This, of course, comes on board in the 1930s. Um, Just before the social security number was the birth certificate. And there's a kind of interesting contrast between these two. So in 1903, a number of organizations got together, the American Public Health Association, American Medical Association, um, just kind of a wide swath of organizations got together and said, we need standardized birth certificates and we need standardized ways of registering persons, but especially babies. and we're now on the other side of that. We, you know, it's very rare that you meet somebody who doesn't have a birth certificate or wasn't born with a birth certificate within, I mean, most everybody receives them at the hospital or the midwifery clinic, but the, you know, there's maybe a few who get them a, a week or so after, but very rare is it the case that somebody like, just doesn't have one. Like extremely, extremely rare. In fact, so rare that it's debilitating for people to go about their lives without a birth certificate. Um, But we're way on the other side of this process that started back in 1903. And when they made this commitment and got sort of funding and organizational capacity going in 1903 to 
develop what, the, what we could call a universal birth certificate, again, the United States context, it took them 30 years to meet their mark, which was registration of, I believe it was 90% of newly born babies. Um, and so this is, you know, this is registration in like a standard sense that's familiar to us today in terms of data systems and information systems. It's basically databasing people, even though it's like pieces of paper and files and, you know, file cabinets, et cetera. So it took them 30 years to achieve that, 1903 to 1933. Right after that, and so I'm coming back to Social Security, the Social Security achieved a similar level of registration of eligible workers in just six months over the winter of, I believe it was 1935 to 1936. So there's this contrast of like takes 30 years to get registration of babies and then, but by then you've, you've got clear evidence that they've worked out the technology, they've worked out the information technology such that they can do something that's, it's, it's different, right? Registering workers versus registering babies. Um, but it's, you know, similar kind of project and they can achieve it in six months, right? So they can turn it around much more, much more quickly. And so we're on the other side of that six months. Social, right? Now we all have our birth certificates. We all have our social security numbers. We all have our legalized you know, identities and names. We all have our bank account numbers, our education records, our health records, our email addresses, our passwords, our long lists of passwords, right? We're immersed in these data. But that immersion really starts 100 years ago. And one of the things that interests me and one of the reasons I think emphasizing that history is important is because it offers a different perspective on and I think a way of pushing back against some of the, let's just call it marketing that's put out there by big tech and social media corporations like Facebook Apple, Alphabet, who would have us believe that these data systems are so new and so exciting that we all have to glom on as quickly as we can and just load ourselves into these databases. And I think a lot of their, their glitz is premised on this novelty through which they present themselves. And I think a historical perspective gives us ways of understanding how, you know, not just, you know, my grandmother, but, you know, my grandmother's parents, right, um, were, you know, the sort of the first generation um, to be beneficiaries of, but also burdened by the introduction of these new data systems. We, we can talk more about the, the benefits and the burdens, but once these systems become obligatory, they become a terrain of inequality, right? And it becomes very easy for certain actors, intentionally or not, to set up inequalities between certain populations. It's much more difficult to institute an inequality for something that's optional, but something that you can't opt out of, right? It's, it's, that becomes a terrain where inequality could really get its grip. So there's a kind of political dimension to all of us loading ourselves into these databases too. And one perspective is also that it can be somewhat scary. Obviously, even given history, it's not necessarily new, but it feels, at least in a lot of the common parlance and the common conversation, that it's being used perhaps for nefarious reasons. And information's out there that we put it out there willingly, but we didn't ask for it to be used that way. 
there's yeah i there's, there's definitely this sense in which there are these new uses um by for instance um, advertisers, right, who make use of metadata that Facebook sort of, you know, or, you know, any of these social media companies bucket their users and then sell off these buckets to advertisers so they can kind of micro-target. Um, there's certainly a new level of sophistication with that. I mean, the core kind of rudimentary idea of you market to your demographic, to your sort of target demographic, that's not new. Um, and the history of marketing kind of interestingly coincides with the history of these data systems going back 100 years. doesn't line up exactly. There's novelty from the side of how easy it is for us to be aware of it. And I think that's interesting. But again, what's not new is that we're databased in these ways and that these databases are being used for nefarious purposes, right? I mean, there's, I think in the, the sort of common thinking about these things there's kind of two sort of like nefarious agents or institutions kind of lurking in the wings and they're not really lurking in the wings they're kind of brightly there right and one is the advertisers that i just mentioned and they're certainly not lurking they're they're loudly and proudly proclaiming hey we're part of these mega cap you know multi-trillion dollar market capitalization corporations you know like apple i mean these are huge 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 companies honest i mean the hugest companies ever to have sort of graced the face of the earth in terms of market capitalization much of which is leverage but you know that leverage shows that people are investing in the idea that that there's a lot of appeal to it and the other kind of actor that, that people see as nefarious is our states, governments, right, who are scooping up huge warehouses and troves of data in ways that um, I think rightly give people a lot of pause. But again, that too is not new, right? I mean, we think back to Hoover and the, C you know, the FBI and, you know, and the institution of the CIA in the 50s and 60s. Um, and just like the, these massive FBI surveillance programs, especially in the context of McCarthyism and the Red Scare, right? But what I think um, is poignant for a lot of people today, um, certainly for me and the people I talk to, is just the, the extent to which all of this is much more visible. Like we, we kind of see it more cleanly and more clearly um, in part because it's, you know, floating around there right in front of our eyes on our phones. It's like it's just much more difficult to ignore it. And so, you know, kind of ironically, the thing that makes it seem scary or feel, you know, quite understandably scary, overwhelming, I and mean, we very much feel out of control with these data. But ironically, the thing that makes it s that feels so much scarier than it, you know, perhaps did for prior generations who were equally loaded into these databases is the visibility. And that's also the very thing that gives us possibilities for resistance or for um, participation and getting involved and for raising public consciousness. And there's just so much greater awareness now of these kinds of dangers and concerns. That awareness has yet, to my eye, to translate into good, sturdy policy in the U.S. context. You know, I mean, I think it's translated into sturdier policy than we previously had in the EU context and in certain limited U.S. jurisdictions. California is kind of a leader on this. But I do think it is a sign for hope that people are increasingly aware of 
the 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 depth of their immersion in data and the dangers. That said, I think we're more aware of some of the dangers than others, and that's kind of where equality comes back into the picture. Why are you as a philosopher studying personal data? Yeah, I I I love that question. And so my answer here, I mean, my thought on this has more to do with what I think about philosophy than maybe with what I think about data, though obviously it, it's related to both. Um, but I think what philosophy is good for as both, you know, like an academic discipline that somebody like might take a course in at UO or LCC or, you know, any other university, um, you know, but not just as an academic discipline, but also philosophy as a kind of practice of self-reflection that anybody can incorporate into their lives or spend some time with, and really everybody does spend some time, some portion of their lives philosophizing in that sense of like intensive self-reflection, right? Intensive scrutiny about where I am, my, you know, my location, in the world, um, in the social world, in history, the meaning, the various meanings of those various kinds of locations. And, that, and that's a kind of philosophy that I think is available to everybody, regardless of whether they've been a major in philosophy or minor in philosophy, have ever even taken an official course in philosophy, have read any you know books by Aristotle, Kant, Nietzsche, Simone de Beauvoir, whoever. You know, even somebody who's not read, you know, philosophy is available to everybody in that sense. Though, you know, reading the great works of philosophy, I think, in, enriches the extent to which it's available to any individual. But philosophy in both of those senses, what it's, I think, one way to say this is what it's good for. Another way to say this is why it can be enthralling, why it can provoke a sense of wonder and self-wonder is that it's a way of sticking with the really hard questions. So philosophy is a way of spending time with tarrying, with engaging, and just being immersed in the really difficult questions. And you know, you can think of this in terms of like the perennial philosophical questions, like what's the meaning of life? Okay, that's a really difficult question for anybody to consider, for anybody to take up in a serious way, right? And oftentimes people go non-philosophical with it, which is just to say they dismiss it and they don't answer that question. And you know, it occurs to them, it occurs to everybody, but it's hard or it's too hard. So they just kind of drop it. They brush it to the side. And what do they do? They pursue something that's maybe not meaningful to them, but is a way of money making, right? And they don't spend the time figuring out a path towards something that would be more fulfilling, which would bring in sufficient money and also bring in enrichment and meaning to their lives, right? But, you know, I, th I think a lot of people do find that, um, you know, sort of thread that needle through meaningfulness and a fulfilling career, you know, and, and hopefully they do. Um, and I think being self-reflective about one and one's place in the world and one's options in the world, um, that kind of philosophical reflection sort of leads to that kind of enrichment. Um, I'm going to get back to data, I promise. 
But philosophy is the thing that's good with the hard questions. That's my basic view. And that's certainly my view of philosophy in a sense of being a philosophy teacher at University of Oregon. I mean, this is what I hope to always convey in my courses, whether successfully or not. I don't know, I have one of my students on next week. Many of them have gone on to do wonderful, amazing things. Um, but you know, I, I hope to convey to them the value of spending time with, of a discipline of thought that spends time with the really difficult questions. And I think of data, and specifically data ethics, I mean, my focus is really on the ethics and politics of data. That's, to me, a really hard question. It's a question that I and my friends and, you know, really anybody I meet who's willing to have an interesting conversation kind of gets or is alive to. I mean, it's very difficult to not understand, to, you know, to kind of be, as it were, like oblivious to the importance of these questions about privacy and surveillance or, you know, um, algorithmic discrimination and bias. Um, you know, once, once those questions sort of come across one's consciousness, we're all just deeply aware of how much of our lives are loaded through these data and run through these data. So these questions, you know, they, they're ones that, that we're aware of the importance of, and when we have conversations about them, I think we're also aware of, like, the difficulty of getting a good answer, right, at least in short order, right? And so I think philosophy is good in those spaces, is valuable in those spaces where it's not clear what a good answer is going to look like. But data is one of those spaces where it's just like the parameters are much less well-defined than something like, you know, um, you know getting a, a cure for remedial treatments for like these like very vicious diseases, right? Philosophy helps us like dig in to data, helps us dig into the ethical questions, to our concerns, our felt concerns about privacy, um, and some of these other concerns that I think ought to take more center stage around bias, discrimination, inequality, but which, um, you know, once you kind of hear a little bit about them, it like becomes like, yeah, right, this is like a really tough question, too, and a really important one. So if you take a philosophy class, perhaps there is no right or wrong answer. The idea is really creative thinking or depth of thinking around all the parameters of the question. The the goal or the standard is, yes, depth of thinking, or I like to think of it as rigor of thinking. There are right and wrong answers in philosophy. I don't want to be a relativist by any means or encourage relativism um, on the radio or in podcasts or in print in any way. There are right or wrong answers in philosophy. However, the right or wrong answers, things for which there are clear right or wrong answers in philosophy, like for us, that's the easy stuff. And that's not to take away from other fields, right? Very difficult to get the right answer to, you know, some question in psychology or medicine or law. But those right answers are gettable, and with hard work, somebody can go out there and get them, and then they write about it, and then the you know somebody doing philosophy can read what's written and sort of, so we you know those right answers are. That's kind of a first step for us. And then we like to push into these areas where um, there are not yet clearly defined parameters for what it would even mean to be right or to be wrong, right, if that makes sense. Um, but it's not that there's no right or wrong. It's that where we feel the force and the need for pushing toward what is 
true or right when it's not yet clear what that would look like. But that's what we're working toward, right, is, is the sort of specification of that. So creative thinking is absolutely a part of that, but it's not all of it. And I would insist on a, a difference between philosophy and literature, or philosophy and poetry, or philosophy and the novel in that respect, and not hierarchically so, like not to the denigration of one or the other. There's just different, different kinds of goals, different kinds of standards at play. Um, and I think that's also important to insist on. I mean, it's something I insist on with my philosophy colleagues all the time um, because I think some people have a, do have a conception of philosophy as this more creative pursuit, um, like a more purely creative pursuit. And the creative side is valuable, but it can't be purely creative. And if it were, then we should really just go into literature because they're so much better at it than we are. I mean, it's almost... Like if the point of philosophy is creativity of thought, it's you know in some ways it's almost like em embarrassing because there's like the the fiction writers just kind of and the poets, the like depth and verve and just like excitement of their imaginations just like run circles around so much philosophy. There is the rare you know person who can like bring bring both together, and that's the sort of golden star. But um, but I think you know I think of philosophy as sort of forging that path to what is right and what is true when it has yet to be forged. How does AI, artificial intelligence, fit into this conversation and into information gathering, as it were? AI is kind of like the, the new hot topic, the new hot buzzword in the data space. Um, I think this is um, another example of the conversation following for lack of a better term, the flows of capital in Silicon Valley. Um, there's, you can sort of trace this arc of, well, now it's AI, but before that it was algorithms, before that it was big data, before that it was data, but it's kind of all these all along. I mean, big data has kind of fallen out as a term a little bit, but data, algorithms, AI, I mean, they just sort of pop and buzz and sizzle in Silicon Valley. I mean, and if you want to sort of look for leveraged market capitalization down in the Bay Area, um, or I mean, really kind of globally, you're going to find it in AI right now. So in some ways, what I'm saying there is that AI is, again, it's not as new as the kind of glitz and glamour machines of Silicon Valley would have us believe. Um, and when you really kind of drill down with computer scientists, including the computer science, I mean, the engineers, with computer science backgrounds who work at these companies, they're going to be, on the whole, very honest and straightforward and clear about the limits of what gets called AI, um, what gets called artificial intelligence or machine learning. I think there's all this buzz around it in part because the, you know, the C-suite level executives are just making these huge promises on behalf of AI that really sort of exceed the capacities of these systems at present. I'm not saying I'm skeptical about these promises or the content of what's being promised, but I am saying that, you know, I think that the promissory mode is a distraction from what's actually going on with data systems. There's increasing attention to the problems of um, 
bias and discrimination and inequality in algorithms. There's increasing an increasingly clear and vocal concern about privacy issues and surveillance issues. And as these are coming to the fore, it's, I'm not saying this is conspiratorial. I'm saying like, this is what the organizational logic would, or from a different perspective, somebody might think of it as, you know, this is what capitalism wants us to do is like when these problems rear their head or raise their head, it's convenient to shift everybody's attention to something else that's exciting and about which there are these big promises such that, well, maybe we can ignore some of these problems because so much good is about to come of this, right? It's going to make our lives easier in all these untold ways. Um, at the same time, AI, there's like this, we're at this very interesting moment with AI. There was recently this open letter signed by a number of tech luminaries and, um, you know, just like big players in tech space down in Silicon Valley and kind of nationally and presumably at this point internationally, calling for a, a pause on AI until some of the ethics questions could be figured out. The phrase um, that I'm aware of that gets used for this down in Silicon Valley is alignment. We need to align AI with our values. And um, the issue that gets biggest play in this is interesting. So on the one hand, this this is like, I'm, I'm torn on this, right? On the, and somebody, well, why? why is he torn? He's just saying it's, we really need to spend more time on the ethics of these issues, and that's important. And here's all the big names saying we need to spend more time on the ethics of these issues. So, you know, isn't Koopman happy? Like, that's what he wanted all along. So in some ways, I am. I am happy to see this. On the other hand, you know, I'd, I'd rather see it come through sturdier regulatory institutions like the state. Um, I'm skeptical of self-regulation in industry, though I wasn't always, but I have grown skeptical. Um, but more importantly, and here's one reason, like an, an actual sort of contentful reason for skepticism about this, one of the big issues that, and probably the biggest issue that the alignment conversation tends to be focused around is um, encapsulated in the question of, is AI going to destroy civilization? Is AI going to destroy humanity, right? And there are these visions of AI kind of escaping control of programmers and designers and developers and engineers and loading itself onto, and I don't even know, I mean, this is this dystopian fantasy, but, you know, I, I think what they think is maybe going to happen is going to load itself onto, you know, servers globally and take over the computers and intentionally or, well, how can we ascribe attentions to a computer, by the way, but whatever, whether it's intentionally or not, it's going to, like, grind logistics and transportation and agribusiness and everything's going to grind to a halt and there's going to be, like, no food on the grocery shelves and chaos ensues, right? So there are just so many presuppositions behind this dystopian worry. I mean, when somebody describes something like that to you, yeah, like, oh, that's worrying. I do not want that to happen. Um, but there's lots of things I can make up. And, you know, if you sort of sit there and think about them, you're like, yeah, I don't want that to happen, right? Alien invasions or an evil race of dragons pops into existence and tries to destroy humans. Yeah, I don't want that to happen. That sounds scary, you know? I don't, I don't think we have a... there's 
not a lot of rational basis for believing that AI is going to, to do this. And in many ways, I think this kind of um, focusing the alignment conversation or the ethics conversation on the AI apoc apocalypse really distracts us from the actual on-the-ground issues that are happening right now for which we have ample documented, written, you know, proven evidence that systems that are being implemented right now are creating problems. And again, it's an for me a fundamentally an inequality issue, creating more problems for certain groups and classes of persons than others. We've got evidence of that. This kind of impeaches this technology, not in the sense of like, let's get rid of it, but it impeaches it in the sense of, we need to do it better. Clearly, we need to do it better. You, you know, your technologies have been unregulated for decades. We're still in this wild west electronic frontier with data tech. Um, and you know, now we've got clear evidence of harms actually flowing. And what do they do? They say, oh, yes, right, we need to pause and worry about the ethics. But the ethics we need to worry about is this fantasy scenario. And then one can kind of see the end game of how that plays out, that they throw what sounds like a lot of money, but to them is nothing, like tens of millions of dollars. At, you know, They're going to hire some academics and some industry experts to write some white papers that are going to show that you know, here's some parameters that we need to put in place so that AI can't destroy civilization. And we're good, we're clean, we're done. Let's unpause, let's go back to ramping up AI, to deploying and implementing these technologies everywhere in, you know, um, mainframe computers, in web servers, in your phone, in your car, in your microwave, in your fridge in all kinds of institutional contexts, in protocols in medicine, protocols in court proceedings, protocols in policing, protocols in education, right? We're gonna bring AI into the fold in all of these. And we're good because it's not gonna destroy humanity. But meanwhile, the things that we should really be worried about, the documented harms with respect to privacies and with respect to discrimination and inequalities, those just kind of keep on flowing, right? You, know, you asked about AI, and I'm kind of like drilling into the, the sort of ethics side of AI. There's also, you know, what we in philosophy call the, the epistemology side of things, or the theory of knowledge, knowledge side of things. How is AI kind of different as, as a mode of knowing or as a mode of produce, producing truth or as a kind of computational technology? And there's a whole set of interesting questions there that I haven't really spoken to. But that's, I mean, that's fascinating stuff, too. We don't have a whole lot more time. You've touched on the issues of discrimination and information bias. And I know we aren't going to go into it in a long way, but I think a good place to end this kind of conversation is maybe talk just a minute or two about what that is and are you hopeful that that, that information will be used more positively and more universally correct or equal than it is going now. Yeah, am I hopeful? I think I have to be hopeful. Um, but I, I am hopeful that people who care can do something. I am not a, I, li I like to say I'm not a betting man. I'm not a, a, a predictive machine. I'm not a predictive algorithm. I don't know, I, I know how it's actually gonna play out. 
but I know there are a lot of tough questions here and there's a lot of space for thought and a lot of space for careful, attentive, philosophical, ethical thought. And that is something that I'm absolutely devoted to as a teacher, which is why I you know, have designed classes um, and delivered classes and taught classes around these issues and talk with colleagues, you know, other colleagues at UO, including my colleague Ramon Alvarado um, and other colleagues nationally, uh, you know, about, about these issues and the importance of like bringing these issues to our students in the classroom and sort of getting it out there as part of public education, as part of education of the public. So, so I am hopeful, um, you know, that said, right now we're in this, I think we're really kind of on our, uh, sort of on the backs of our heels, as it were, with respect to the force with which these technologies are coming at us. Some of what's going on in this space, um, I think the clearest examples are around racial discrimination, though there are also, I mean, there's a very clear documented case of gender discrimination in an automated resume vetting system that Amazon had employed that differentially scored resumes and gave women applicants lower scores, not on the basis of there being women, but on the basis of other proxy data in the resume. And what does that show you? It does not show you that the women applicants were less qualified. It shows you that um, the computational system, in whether it was a AI machine learning system or not, you know, it's kind of immaterial. It was a computational system, was trained or coded in such a way that it was biased against um, qualities that women applicants were bringing to these specific positions. The brightest examples, though, tend to be examples of. Um, racially discriminatory technologies. So for instance, technologies in um, data technologies in the medical space, where there was a study of um, risk for certain kinds of disease. And I think another study, a similar study of um, predicted need for treatment. And in the, this, the test population, um, black patients were judged by the c computer to be much less in need of treatment. But it turns out it's not because of medical facts about them. It's because they were seeking and receiving less treatment in the first place. And that was something that was kind of being factored into, you know, how much medical treatment do does a computer think you need? Well, you know, it kind of makes sense that part of the algorithm for that would be how much medical treatment are you getting? But then there's racial disparities in availability of medical treatment, um, not only in terms of like levels of insuredness, but also just availability in terms of, is it available to me to go to this one-off random doctor's appointment when I've got like a little pain in my shoulder or something that maybe is more serious, but I've got to go to work, right? And then these track economic status and they track socioeconomic status. So, you know, we have these really, com like we live in these like hyper complex societies and it's not impossible, but it's extremely difficult, extremely, extremely difficult to put the important features of our social settings into code to, you know, and I basically think of this not as an algorithm problem, but what does I call a, a format problem or a data structure problem. And here I'll just do a little technical thing, which is that computer science will tell you that, that programs, computer programs consist of two elements, algorithms and data structures or formats. 
everything we hear about these days is algorithms. That's because that's the term Silicon Valley is pushing also in you know mainstream reporting, but also in my space, in the academic space of the critical literature on data, everybody's focused on and obsessed with the algorithm. But I think the formats and the data structures are equally important, if not more important. So if we think about the example I just talked about, you can think about that in terms of how is a database designed? What are its rows? What are the um, permissible, what, you know, what kinds of information are being collected? And then what are the permissible variables that go into those rows? A really clear example of this is just you know, a social media profile. One of the things that databases on persons is the gender they select with the gender dropdown. What are the permissible, permissible variables in that? Just male, female, just male, female, other. Is there a kind of you know, seven variable dropdown they're giving? Can people type in their own answers? This, you know, I'm not saying this is necessarily relevant in every case. It seems pretty relevant to social media, like in the current world today, but it's, you know, it's also going to be relevant in many kinds of domains and in different ways. And I don't have like an all-purpose answer to that. My question, or my, my point is rather, these are really like contextual nuanced features of our social settings. And it's very difficult, but again, not impossible to code those into computational systems. But we really need to be attentive and careful and rigorous about that. And what we see happening in space after space where data drives research or where data drives the flow of eyeballs or where data drives the flows of capital is people actually aren't attentive at all to those things. And what I mentioned earlier about this sort of split between the algorithms and the formats, all the money, all the interest, all the sexiness, as it were, is on the side of algorithms, right? That's where people want to be. So much so that, the, you know, the database curators, database management, database design definitely is a sort of second-class sort of set of concerns and occupations in the world of Silicon Valley and, and computer science. And that's a shame because there's so much that's conceptually rich in database management and database design and curation and so much work that needs to be done there and can be done there and people can be thoughtful about and have a sense of how to be thoughtful about these kinds of things. But the emphasis is just not being put there. Both of these big companies, but I also see this, and I can give you lots of examples of this, in academic settings, in, in data science, in various data science de deployments, in discipline after discipline after discipline in academia. People just kind of pull pre-existing data sets off the shelf. They use it as a black box. They plug it into their algorithm, and they run with it. That's the worst case scenario for database curation because you're taking something designed from or for one social setting and just assuming without thinking about it other than thinking, hey, this is available to me. I can do it. This is going to ramp up my project and make it you know, run more quickly so that I can publish my articles faster um, with, you know, without thinking, like, does this apply to the other social setting that I'm doing this in? And a, a good clear example of this from industry space um, actually, it's kind of hybrid industry ac academic space would be some of the early facial recognition algorithms were trained on um, training data that was sourced from um, mugshots, like mugshot databases. And why? Well, if you need to train an image recognition system on human faces, you know, portrait or profile, where are you going to get a huge swath of already digitized portrait profile shots? Not the internet 
right? Because they're not tagged that way. And you, what you're trying to design is a computer system to recognize faces. You don't already have one that can trawl all the images out there. Now we have it because these were designed earlier. What they had to do is well, let's off the shelf these things. But of course, there's going to be all kinds of problems when that's your training data and then you build a system or an AI that you're then going to apply more broadly to a population that is not in every relevant respect going to be similar to the population whose photos, you know, whose, whose faces made those photos. Um, so there's this tendency to just off the shelf stuff and use it because it's there. And that's a forgivable tendency, like that makes sense. We wanna like make things easy in our lives, but it's not thoughtful, it's not careful, it's not rigorous. And when we're deploying these systems in these high stakes settings, I think we really need to hold ourselves to a higher standard. Thank you. I appreciate your insights and what you're doing. And we could go on longer, but we're not going to right now. But thank you very much to Colin Copeman, chair of the philosophy department at the U of O, also an author of How We Became Our Data and I've learned a lot, so thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara. Really enjoyed it. You've been listening to KLCC Media's The Oregon Grapevine, fresh pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. Thank you.